Good morning, Mercy Hill. My name is Brad. I'm one of the elders here. If we haven't met, uh, I'd love to meet you later. Um, I think one of the one of the hardest days of my ministry career over the last 20 years or so took place last summer. Uh, my wife is the director of Safe Families, which is a ministry that hosts um, young young children, um, particularly the kids of, of oftentimes single moms who just need a chance to get a leg up and um, need a break where they can work a couple of jobs and so other families step in and, and host their young kids and just take them in as their own for a month or two or three. And, and there was a young boy who was 10 months old um, and he, during the time that his particular safe family was hosting him. Uh, he had been with them for, for quite a while, for several months. He was a very, very lovable little 10-month-old. And um, during that time, he got sick. And they went to the hospital like that often happens with little babies. You know, they'll get sick and, and we run to the hospital and, and things get better before we know it. But for this little boy um, who happened to have Down syndrome... Um, his immune system was very compromised, and the family realized that he had contracted meningitis. And things became serious very quickly. And over the course of just a couple of days, he had a sudden stroke, massive stroke across his brain, and he went from being one of the most cheerful, joyful little babies that you've ever met to being brain dead. And the next few days, we walked out the, the sadness and the sorrow, not only with uh, the Safe family's mom and dad and all their little kids who had loved on this little boy as if he were their own, but also with the mom who's in the midst of grief and being challenged by nurses and doctors uh, about uh, organ donation and funerals and all the things that would have to come over those next couple of days as the machines were slowly turned off and one test after another was done and the reality of that situation set in. We went to Elmwood and we did the funeral there and just a small chapel, smaller than this. It was supposed to just be a very few, small amount of family, a couple of friends and... Uh, and that was not the case. And I can remember walking in in order to share in that funeral. And uh, I was unprepared for a little three, four foot casket that sat at the front of that room. I know I never went near it the whole day. Couldn't. I saw it and I walked away. And very most definitely was not prepared to come into a room full, so full that there were 12, 15 kids seated on the floor in front of the casket. It's the only place for them to sit. Little kids sitting around a tiny casket. I was unprepared for that moment. And I remember after the service, the mom, uh, I'd, I'd shared the service with uh, the Say family's dad, and the mom had said that... Um, she said, Ken made us laugh and Brad made us cry. And I talked a lot about grief. And I talked a lot about what the Bible describes as biblical lament. Lament is 
healthy and needed in the life of a Christian, but only Christians can truly lament. It takes faith to lament. And David, more than I believe almost anyone in the scriptures outside of Jesus, teaches us about the power of lament. Lament is the path from heartbreak to hope. If I had to define lament, it is the path from heartbreak to hope. We all are very uncomfortable with sadness and grief and loss as we should be. It's most unnatural. We weren't created by God to experience these things. In fact, God created a world in which sadness and grief and loss were not a part of His creation. They were not a part of His original plan. We're so uncomfortable with sadness and we're so uncomfortable with grief and loss that we oftentimes don't know how to deal with them. You see it in the way in which we um, attempt to parent our kids. How often uh, do you try or how often do you remember your parents saying that they tried to cheer you up as a kid when you were sad? They would say, what are you sad about? And then they would say, oh, don't, don't be sad. It could be worse. Think about all the things that we have to be thankful for. And we, we have all these different cliches and one-liners that we use with our children. But what are we really trying to do in those moments? We're trying to make our kids happy, right? But here's the question that we need to propose, even to ourselves. Why do we feel this great need to be happy all the time? Why do we feel this great need for our kids to be happy all the time? Is that even healthy that we would have this overwhelming sense of happiness all the time? I can tell you that it's not. Jeff Schulte in his workbook, Voices of the Heart, writes, and I want to share this quote with you. And I want you to pay attention to the second word of the quote. One gift one gift we have been given to help us name, be blessed by, and accept the losses of life is the ability to feel sad. Since sadness is the feeling that speaks to how much we value what we love, what we have, what is missed, what is gone, and what is lost, we need to grieve deeply when people we love depart or when what we dream doesn't come true. Since loss is a never-ending experience of life, if we are unwilling to experience sadness, we will not attach to another person. Sadness allows the intimacy and impact of love to be much richer because it exposes the heart to its true ability to attach value, and honor. We you think about that for just a moment. If we don't allow ourselves to be sad before the Lord, if we don't learn what it means to bring our grief and our sorrows and even our sadness and disappointments to God, if we don't learn the value in this, then we'll be unable to experience the intimacy and the deep and abiding relationship that God desires to have with us. Now, 
before you start feeling a lot of shame this morning, and before you start saying, I'm really not good at this, welcome to the club. Because I spent some time this last week just writing down the most significant losses of my life. And I realized that most of those are connected to either ministry or in times where I'm expected to be ministering to others. And so I take the easy way out. Just like I did at the little boy's funeral. What was I thinking in the back of my head? i got to hold it together for all these people. i got to be able to stand up here and say something. I'm not going anywhere close to that casket. And so oftentimes, even for me, I, re- I realize that I can even use ministry in order to let myself off the hook from feeling sadness or experiencing grief. And, and so I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to anyone today. And I'm coming at this as a learner who understands the value of lament cognitively but has experienced it very little in my own life. I'm immature in processing my own sadness and loss and grief, but I have a desire to grow. And so let's look at David's life because this moment in David's life gives us an incredible example and vision for what it looks like for a leader to lead an entire country in order to understand their grief, their sadness, and what it means to lament. We're at a a point in the life of David's story that's kind of halfway through this series. If you remember David, he was anointed by Samuel, probably around the age of 15, young shepherd boy. And it's been most likely around 15 years. He's now 30. He's killed Goliath. He's had incredible highs in his life. He's killed thousands. There were songs that were written that even said he'd killed tens of thousands. He's led men into battle as a very young man in his 20s. But then his lows has been very low. His highs were the highest of highs. And his lows have been the lowest of lows. Because the man whom he loved, the king whom he came under Saul's tutelage, under Saul's authority, has been hunting him for years and David's been hiding out in the wilderness and we finally reach a point in the story in which Saul has been destroyed of all things a man who's an Amalekite claims to have killed Saul the very people that God had called Saul to destroy and Saul had been disobedient and so David writes a song for all of Israel he writes a song to commemorate this event This moment in history. And what I'd like to do today is, instead of going verse by verse through this song, in order to do that, it would almost be like taking a great poem, a great work of literature in English and attempting to translate it into Russian. I mean, it it wouldn't work. It, It would lose so much of its meaning. And as you dig into the Hebrew In this song, you see so many nuances and so many ways in which uh, David is creatively crafting a beautiful piece of literature and music. And if we got into it line by line, I think that you probably wouldn't remember it. We probably wouldn't have time. But what I'd like to do 
is point out what David is attempting to do for the nation of Israel in this moment. He's attempting to lead them to a place of lament, a place that most of us are very unfamiliar with. Lament stands in the gap between pain and promise. It's a prayer of pain when we don't feel like trusting God. It's a prayer of pain when we don't feel like trusting God, but it's a prayer that leads us to eventual trust and experience of God's goodness and His grace once again. And it takes faith to pray a prayer of lament. Here's what's so ironic. For many of you, as you hear what it means to pray a prayer of lament, you're going to receive a lot of pushback because if you grew up in a church setting, more than likely you were taught that this meant a lack of faith in God. But what we're going to see is that it actually takes faith to pray a prayer of lament. Even though in this particular song in which David writes, God is not addressed specifically, it takes faith to pray a prayer of lament. Non-Christians don't lament. Non-Christians don't lament because they aren't struggling with the faithfulness of God. They have nothing to complain about because they have very little hope. The only way to feel hopeless is if there is a belief in a greater hope. It's why you're seeing less and less funerals today, less and less memorial services. For many of you, you're having friends and family members who are passing away and there's nowhere to go in grief. It's just a vacuum. It's just a void. By the way, from a psychological perspective and an emotional perspective and most, most especially a spiritual perspective, it's very unhealthy. Very unhealthy. I live in a house that was built in 1923 and I don't, I don't think most of us understand just how dramatically our society has moved away from sadness and grief and lament. We see the anxiety and we try to fix it with medication, but we don't understand where all the anxiety and sorrow and grief are coming from and depression. Look at my house. My house tells the story. Look at the front door of my house. It's about this wide. When we bought the house, the former owners said, from our understanding, this wide door was placed in the house because in 1923, it needed to be wide enough for a casket to fit through the front door. Because they still did awake. So in some way would, would pass away in the house, undertaker would come and take the body, they would bring the body back and they would, they would set up a wake in the house in which the family would stay up all night and they would process their grief and they would share stories. And there were, there were days of lament and sorrow and grief before you ever reached the funeral service or the memorial service. But today we don't lament. There's only the life that was lived, and now it's over. And to think deeply about that leads people to despair, and so they, they just avoid it. But you can't avoid your grief. But David doesn't avoid. In fact, he writes a song. And not only does he write a song, he commissions it to be learned by the entire community. He is leading wisely. He's leading the nation 
He's leading them to enter into their own grief. And he's teaching them what it means for future generations to understand how to do the same. Because he knows that it's not simply Saul and Jonathan who have fallen. It's an entire army of men and fathers and sons and husbands and loved ones. Some of the things that we see in David's song is that David is so sorrowful, he can't even bring himself to name Saul. He speaks of Saul's, his shield, and he describes in the way that, it, that, that it's no longer oiled. He can't even bring himself in the early part of the song to say that his best friend Jonathan, that King Saul, have been killed. One thing I love about this is that David shows his uprightness and character. Notice that he doesn't speak ill of Saul. He only remembers the good. I find that to be fascinating. David mourns greatly for his good friend Jonathan. Some people have said, hey, is this a homosexual relationship? I think that says more about our culture and society um, today than it does about David and Jonathan's relationship. You say, how does David love a man more than he loves his wives? Well, he lived in a day and time in which oftentimes he would be given a wife because of what it gave him from a military relationship, what it gave him from a partnership with another nation. And David is remembering man, a best friend of his who is much older than him, Jonathan. A man who said, I'm going to stand by my father, the king, but David... I have the vision from God to know that you're the future king and that I am in your corner and that I will stand by you and I will fight for you and I will fight for your life. And, that jo- and David and Jonathan had such a close relationship as friends, as men fighting together in battle. And David is grieving that. Now, I want us very quickly to look at Psalm 13 because I want us to leave here today with a little bit of an understanding of what it looks like for lament to take place within our own lives. Psalm 13 is one of the shortest laments that we have and one of the clearest that David writes for us. And in it, we see a pattern for lament that I think we can very easily bring into our own lives as ways of processing the grief and loss and sadness that we experience. Listen as David writes in Psalm chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in, in, my, in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? David's not happy. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. We see a pattern for lament in Psalm 13 and throughout many of David's psalms. And the pattern is this. We see a turn that takes place. We see a complaint. We see a request or an ask. And then we see trust. Think about that from Psalm 13. We see David turn. In writing the song, it's an act of turning to the Lord. 
To turn means that we are willing to pray even in the midst of our pain. And that's very difficult to do. Have you ever found yourself being sorrowful or or being anxious and maybe even just like boiling the ocean of your anxiety for a day or two? And have you ever had that moment where the light of Christ hits you and you realize, I haven't even prayed about this? Like I've been so busy in my fear, in my sorrow, in my sadness, in my anxiety that I haven't even taken this to the Lord. Lament means that we're willing to turn in the midst of our pain and that we would pray. That's why I love the way that our our CBR journals that so many of us are reading this year and following the Community Bible Reading Journal and the way that we're having our devotional times. I love the fact that the first question is, what do you need to surrender today through prayer? What do you need to surrender? Because if you take the time to quiet your heart, and to quiet the noise of your cell phone and all the busyness of your schedule and the things that are around you and to, and to actually answer that question on a daily basis, what do I need to surrender to the Lord? You realize just how needy you are. And it's a turn that takes place in your life daily as you begin to pray and share your struggles, your sorrows, your sadness, your griefs, your uncertainties with the Lord. We should learn to address our pain on a daily basis. Because if we don't lament and turn to God, if we give God the silent treatment, this is the ultimate manifestation of unbelief. Giving God the silent treatment over weeks and months and years, it'll lead us to a place of anger. And eventually it'll lead us to a point of self-pity. And we will eventually... In that place of self-pity, we will find ourselves beginning to make vows. Saying things like, God doesn't care. God doesn't hear. Nothing will change. And subconsciously, we'll begin saying, I'll never trust Him again. And it leads us to a point of giving up. We end up as individuals who claim to believe by faith cognitively, but we're scared to death to trust God on a heart and soul level because we don't believe he's trustworthy. And so we continue to do the religious rhythms, claiming to believe all the right things, but at a heart level, when it comes to our soul, we're so far from God. We're living in unbelief. Now, learning to live with lament on a daily basis means that we have to learn the importance of learning godly complaint. Godly complaint. Look at verses 1 and 2. David is complaining. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? This is godly complaint and it is healthy some of you struggle with the last thing and I just said you're going to be email me this week it is healthy a very close friend to me this last week said why does God ask us to do all the hard things why does God ask us to do all the hard things it was lament and I try to start fixing that statement, and then I, I realize that's just healthy lament. Where are you, God, 
If you love me, why? Lament is how we bring our sorrow to God. To cry is human. No one has to teach you how to cry, right? Come out of your mother's womb. Wait, ah, you're crying. It's healthy. If you don't give a good cry, you're going to get a swat on the bottom. And you're going to get, like, the doctor's going to get a cry out of you, right? It's healthy. No one teaches you how to do that. It's intrinsic. It's natural. To cry is human, but to lament is Christian. And lament is not always natural, but it is important. Because we're wrestling with a paradox of pain and promise. The promise of God's goodness, but living in the temporary pain of the present. And if we don't learn to lament, we will find ourselves going back and forth to one of two ditches. Either living in the ditch of despair or living in the ditch of denial. Living in the ditch of despair, which means that we've given up on God. That we're living in unbelief. That things will never change. That we become sarcastic. Or living in the ditch of denial. I'm fine. I'll work harder. It's not that bad. Now what I'm not encouraging is rage against God. What I'm not encouraging is complete unbelief. But I am encouraging that we would question in the same way that a child has to learn to question their parents. When a child is very young, it's, it's yes and no, and obedience is doing it the first time. But as a child grows older, and as a child becomes a teenager, a wise parent will learn that because I said so isn't healthy for the development and maturation of a young teenager. Because I said so doesn't enable that child to begin to grow up into their own maturity, but it keeps them under your authority and under your stronghold. It's, it's the easier way to parent. It's not the better way to parent. And God understands that as we mature in our sanctification, God's big enough to give us room to complain and ask why. Why? How? Godly complaint. But it doesn't just end with turning to God and, and our complaining. Look at verses 3 and 4. David actually asked for something. He says, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over me. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. We listen to David in these songs and... and uh, we go, yeah, that's a psalm. David's all over the place. David's always riding a roller coaster. I don't think we realize just how much David cries out. Like how desperate he truly is. And how desperate our lives oftentimes feel. We read through Psalm 43 yesterday in the CBR journal. I was looking back at it this morning. David says in verse 5 of Psalm 43, Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? He says his soul is cast down. It's laid low. He says his soul is within turmoil within him. He's writhing within. Have you ever writhed within? You've been in such distress. 
in such sorrow, in such turmoil, in such anger and sadness, even with God. But David makes a request. He asks, he says, Lord, consider, answer me, O Lord. This is not a, an, an angry complaint in which David is just raging against God. But he is saying, God, this feels unfair. But I'm coming to you with my honest heart and I'm asking that you would show up. And I think this is such an important part of the Christian life that we continue asking Oftentimes, we mature to a point in our Christianity where if we know enough theology, we begin to take on this mindset because our devotional life becomes so familiar and we learn so much about prayer and we've done it for so long that we excuse our prayer lives by saying, well, God already knows it all. God's going to come through. He knows what I'm facing. That's all true. He knows it. He knows what we're experiencing better than we do. But God wants us to continue to ask so that our faith will be increased when he answers, when he meets us in our sorrow. He knows what we need, but our faith grows when we ask and seek his answers. Don't be like the child who comes to you and says, Hey, could I? Nah, forget it. You're not going to do it. You ever had that experience? You ever done that to your parents before? Don't be like that. Trust in God. And that's where David leaves us in verses 5 and 6. And trust. David is believing that, that there is no sin too bad that God cannot save. David is, is saying, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. If you know anything about David's life, we're going to see that what happened to David was that he lived, he was anointed at 15, 30 he becomes king. He le a lot of struggle that's coming up in David's life. And David lives a pretty good life from 30 to 50 and from 50 to about 70. It's, it's a sad life. So many consequences begin to catch up with David. But one of the things that's beautiful about David's life is that in the midst of all his mess, David says, I've screwed up, but God, your steadfast love hasn't given up on me. Your salvation, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me and he will deal bountifully with me in the future because his grace is more. When you think about lament in your own life, I want to try to wrap up quickly. Most Christians are really uncomfortable with the idea of lament. We don't do this naturally. Um, we're desperate to find the bright side. Uh, we don't deal with our feelings of sadness. Um, how often in a small group setting do you see someone try to fix a sad moment? So watch what happens the next time there's a sad moment. Someone's either going to make a joke or they're going to dismiss the moment, or they're going to talk about how there's going to be positive results that will come. We are so uncomfortable in letting people sit in their sorrow. Some of you are so uncomfortable with sadness that you physically remove your body from the room because you cannot carry the weight of someone else's sadness because you've entered into so little of your own sadness. You don't go to wakes, you don't go to funerals, you don't go to hospitals. 
and you physically, when things become too sad, you just have to get out. And I don't say that in a way to shame or to guilt, but, but it's, it's a point that m- many people in our society are in. How often have we heard Christian cliches that attempt to find an explanation or a quick solution for our grief instead of giving someone permission to wrestle with the sorrow? I mean, we naturally rush in to try to end the sorrow. God's going to use it for his good. They're in a better place. Joy comes in the morning. This one's terrible, and it, and it happens many times. Uh, God will give you another child, or you could adopt. Terrible things to say. All of these are attempts to make someone feel better because no one likes to see a friend or a loved one in pain. But the only problem with this, there's a quote from Jeff Schulte. If you wish to experience life in the fullest, your heart requires that you be willing to feel sadness. If you want to feel life to the fullest, your heart requires that you be willing to feel sadness. Sadness is a feeling that speaks to how much you valued what is missed, what is gone, what is lost. So when we attempt to short circuit our sadness and our grief by removing someone else's sadness, we're actually devaluing Or we're disrespecting the life of the person who was lost. I've said this before. When I pass, I want a bunch of people showing up crying. Like, Matt Nason, you're not in here? Better be some tears, Matt. Robert, we've been together a long time. You better be crying. Chris and Jared, Ben, y'all better be grieved. I want to see some, I'm not going to be there. There better be some snot. Like, I want some real grief at my funeral. That me being selfish? Maybe a little, but not really. That's me saying, I want to know I'm valued. I I mattered to some people. I want to know my life was valued. I want to know I'm going to be missed. I think you want to know the same. How do we enter into lament? Well, go to the Psalms. Psalm 13 that we looked at today and Psalm 77. Start there. Go to the Psalms. David will teach you all you need to know about lament. Um, If if you want to summarize, I say that because, get this, about 150 Psalms, a third of them are lament. Do you realize what that means for the Christian? That means the Hebrew hymnal. One third of the hymns were sung in a minor key. Let that sink in for a moment. How important is sorrow and grief and sadness in our lives in order that we would find hope in God and joy and actually experience true joy and contentment? I would highly recommend to you the book Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament. If there's been anything in this message that I have said outside of Scripture that has been helpful, it probably came from this book. Read it. What does it look like for us to enter into lament? It's not the opposite of praise. Lament is a path to praise as we're led through our brokenness and our disappointment. As you think about lament in your own life, I've given you some questions to go home with. 
You're not going to have time to answer them today. They're in your order of worship under the message notes. List six significant losses you've experienced in your life. How did you deal or cope with the sadness of these losses? I can tell you that you dealt or coped with the sadness of those losses the way in which you were taught to in your family of origin. Did you act tough? Did you ignore or minimize the loss using one of the following phrases? Sadness means you're not trusting God. You ever heard that? Sadness means you're not trusting God. Don't be sad. God's causing this for your good. It's time you get over this. Did you know that there are some griefs and some trauma and most definitely some damage in your life that you will never get over? That you will grieve the rest of your life? It doesn't mean that it will become incapacitating, but that you will continue the process of lament for the rest of your life and that God will be faithful to continue to bring you back to find joy in Him and to show you that there is hope and that you can be content even in the hurt that's been brought to you by others. Some have said, move on, it's water under the bridge. You'll be better off. Look on the bright side. Look at all the good that came out of it. We can get another dog. Everything happens for a reason. There's some truth to all of those statements. But someone who is dealing with sorrow and grief needs to sit in their sorrow and grief. They don't need to quickly move on. Third question. Which of these wounds have been unable to heal because of the sadness that you are not feeling? And then here's the challenge. Homework of all things. You're like, we showed up, pastor. We were here. Some folks aren't even here. You're going to send us home with homework. Write a personal lament to God using the pattern of Psalm 13 in which you turn, in which you complain, in which you ask, in which you trust. Let me give you an example of what that might sound like. One lady who had recently lost a child shortly before it was born said this. This was her lament. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you withhold the blessing of a child from us? How long will we cry to you? How many days, months, or years will pass with our arms remaining empty? How much longer will we struggle to rejoice with those who rejoice while we sit weeping? But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Thank you, Father. That was her lament, written in tears. The last portion of that is that we trust. And one of the ways in which we trust is we look at Jesus. How did Jesus trust? Jesus lamented in the Garden of Gethsemane, he turned to the Father. He didn't complain because he was Jesus, right? So he missed that element. But he made a request, didn't he? Father, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me. Then he trusted. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. 
In order to trust, we need to place God's word deep in our hearts. And I'm thankful that my mom and dad, when I was a little kid, taught me all these Bible verses. And they gave me, they gave me candy, and they gave me uh, all G.I. Joe figures and all kinds of things that they rewarded and bribed me with in order to do it. And I'm so grateful that they did. Because Deuteronomy 31.8 says, The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. I need that one on an almost daily basis. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Psalm 56, 3 says, very simply, kids, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. It's amazing. You're laying in bed at night and there's something dark moving around. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, Do not be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, make your request known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I'm quoting some of those in King James Version because I remember them from when I was like five and six and seven years old. God's word leads us to a place of trust and a steadfast hope of contentment and joy. But there's a journey called lament that we're on that leads us to knowing Jesus and knowing God's love for us. Bow your heads. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to you, bringing our sorrows and bringing our sadness and bringing our grief and bringing our pain. God, thank you that we have the promise that Jesus' life tells us that he understands, he knows, that he has experienced all that we face. God, would you give us the faith and the courage to trust you even in our misunderstanding, even when we've gone our own way, Even when it seems as if you've left us alone, God, would you help us to turn to you? God, would you help us to be honest and to put our faith in you? God, would you help us like young children to be dependent and to ask and to trust and to wait? God, thank you for the gift of lament. Help each of us to enter into this journey and to find that you are with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we turn to a time of communion, let me invite everyone who's a follower of Jesus to consider your grief and consider your pain and consider your sorrows and understand that Jesus was a man of sorrow and that he was acquainted with grief. And to know that he understands. And as we come to the communion table, bring your grief and bring your sorrow and bring your sadness to him. He's here. He meets you. Come and worship. His table is open.